When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, thanks for joining us for the TFL official podcast. It's been a year now, and over that year, hundreds of thousands of you have tuned in to listen and to find out about your favorite cars and trucks. If you're watching this on YouTube, thank you. If you're one of our Patreons, double thank you. And if you want to listen to it as an audio podcast, feel free to tune in to wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, you know the rest. Hey Tommy, what do you call a car that's not a soft rotor, but also not a true off-roader. Wouldn't that be a medium rotor? A mid-rotor? <laughs> Andre says a mild rotor, because that's what we're talking about in this podcast. We're talking about vehicles, and it's actually kind of a new class of vehicle that isn't quite the typical mild crossover, but isn't the full-on hardcore off-roader. So today we're going to be comparing the Bronco Sport, which we actually have parked right now in our parking lot. Yeah, that's right. And we're talking about um, the Ford, the um, uh, Jeeps. So yeah. Jeep has like the, the, Renegade, Renegade, versus, the Renegade. Versus the Renegade versus the Subaru Crosstrek. And of course, versus the best seller in this segment, uh, which would be the RAV4 Adventure. Yeah, and we'll talk about some slightly off-beat ones, maybe like the Chevrolet Trailblazer, the new little Trailblazer. We've had some experience with that. Talk about vehicles like the... Um, maybe Jeep Compass and the Cherokee and you know how they all kind of stack up because it's an interesting class that really didn't exist just a few years ago. Yeah we've actually driven all of them we've taken most all of them off-road um, so let's kind of talk about what what we mean by I don't know we need a word for it mid-rotor let's go with mid-rotor. Mid-rotor? Yeah not quite a soft <laughs> off-roader but not quite the full-on off-roader so a good example of that would be the fact that of course uh, the Ford Bronco Sport is based on the Ford Escape, right? But with a lot more off-road tech. Right, so the Ford Escape would be a classic uh, soft rotor. You know, something that, that has four-wheel drive but doesn't have enough ground clearance and doesn't have the most important feature, which of course is a low range. And then at the top end of the spectrum, we've got like the Wrangler, the Forerunner, which or, are... Or, or the Bronco. Or the big Bronco, yeah, exactly. which, which are the hardcore off-roaders, but they're pretty compromised on-road and they get you know, relatively poor fuel economy. So 
ever since I think it's Instagram has blown up this idea of adventure camping, which now is called overlanding. Yeah, it used to be camping, and now, of course, your generation doesn't want to do what my generation did, so you got to put a different <laughs> name for it, and you're calling it overlanding. Yeah, everyone's got to have um, a vehicle, an SUV, that's capable, or at least looks capable, of really hitting the trails, but isn't as compromised as something like a Wrangler or a Forerunner. Now, so let's define, once again, the difference. So if you had an Escape, right, you would have a vehicle that has all-wheel drive, but it doesn't have enough ground clearance. The approach, departure, breakover angles aren't exactly grand. We've taken a lot of these up Goldmine Hill while we could still do that, and we tested their all-wheel drive systems. And for you know a lot of reasons, uh, they're not great off-road. First and foremost, the tires are usually uh, all seasons, right? So they don't have good tires. They don't have underbody protection. Exactly. They typically don't have any of the um, you know locking differentials or limited slip differentials that you need when you go out road off road. They're very compromised in terms of what they can do and where they can go out on the trail. They look uh, a little bit taller than like a car, but their capability isn't that much greater than an all-wheel drive car. And then of course you've got the the, the serious off roaders. Let's call them the hardcore off-roaders, oh that sounds awful, but uh, you know things like the Wrangler and of course uh, the upcoming, and we're going to call it the Big Bronco because there's a lot of confusion between the Bronco Sport and the Bronco. So we've taken to calling the Bronco Sport, the one that we're talking about today, the Baby Bronco, uh, and of course the Bronco Bronco, the Big Bronco. Uh, and the Big Bronco, as well as the Wrangler, as well as the Forerunner, we've done a lot of shows about these, would have things like first and foremost a low range, right, so you can amplify the power of the motor. They would have good tires, ATs, usually all-terrain tires, skid plates, good approach departure angles, locking diffs, discomfortable sway bars, yada, yada, yada. Exactly, right, which is stuff you don't typically find on a uh, standard CUV, but then on the flip side of that, they're pretty tall, they kind of wallow around off-road, they don't get very good fuel economy, um, you know, they're hard to get in and out of in a lot of cases, so they're not, they're not vehicles that a lot of typical people want to buy and deal with on a daily basis. And they're almost truck-like, right? They have solid axles, uh, they're body on frame, they're not unibody, and the difference, of course, body on frame is you've got, think of a ladder with a body stuck on top of it, uh, whereas a unibody vehicle is kind of built in one piece, it's, it's welded together. Right, so let's talk about the Bronco Sport. Let's not. Let's leave that for the end. I want, I want to, that's, I want to leave that for, I want to make sure people listen to this, so let's leave it to the end. Let's talk about the competitors to the Bronco Sport. And let's start with the one that everybody thinks of, and that's the RAV4 Adventure. So there's two versions of the off-road RAV4. There's the standard RAV4, and then there's the Adventure, yep. and now there's something called the TRD Off-Road RAV4. And I have to say that the, for the most part, the RAV4 Adventure and TRD Off-Road are more appearance packages than anything else. They don't, they don't really do all that well when right. you get them they, into the dirt. They give you like cladding on the side, right? They give you like different colors to make it more adventure-y. Uh, uh, they give you, um, well, they, they give you a lot of, like you said, stuff to make them look off-road worthy, but they don't give you the things that like the Forerunner would have, which is, of course, a locking rear diff or a lot of ground clearance, or a lot of articulation, or really any or, underbody or protection, or yeah, I mean, they're, they look cool, especially the uh, TRD Off-Road has these really cool uh, wheels on it, it's got, you know, slightly more aggressive tires on it. Um, it, it is worth noting though that they do have a slightly different all-wheel drive system, so uh, the standard base RAV4 all-wheel drives, just, you know, normal uh, front-wheel drive 
base system. And then if you get more of the high-end RAV4s, you get something called the dynamic torque vectoring all-wheel drive, which is better at distributing torque to the wheels with traction. And then the TRD Off-Road has a TRD tuned McPherson strut front suspension, multi-link rear suspension. It's, uh, I mean, it, it, it's good on paper. It does really well in the snow, but it doesn't have the ground clearance or any of the skid plates that you really need to hit the rocks. Yeah, I mean, you put your finger on it, right? We've taken it off-road. We've taken it up our new test, which we're calling Tombstone Hill because well, there's a tombstone on top of it, <laughs> uh, but we've taken up that, and it's actually done well. I mean, some of the vehicles, I'm thinking of like the Sorento we've taken up there with the dual clutch, the transmission is actually overheated, but the uh, Toyota did it. Uh, but what ends up happening is, you know, when you're used to things like the 4Runner, and I'm using the 4Runner to stay within the brand, uh, then you start to worry about like punching holes or, you know, punching through things with pointy rocks uh, that you don't want to punch through. Uh, I mean, it's more than that, too. The, the issue with a lot of these, um, what are we calling, mid-rotors, is that they're very expensive. So the TRD Off-Road uh, RAV4 starts at 35.980, and for that, you could get yourself into a 4Runner, which is going to be much more capable out on the trail. But then again, it's not as nice to live with. The interior isn't as nice. The quality of materials isn't as trendy. I mean, it's... It's a uh, and the fuel economy is going to be much worse. More compromised, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the the TRD off road has like eight point six inches of ground clearance, which is okay. It's not 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 too bad. It has uh, eighteen inch wheels with um, kind of somewhat mild terrainy tires, which is cool. And like you said, the torque vectoring system does work pretty darn well, uh, and it is better than the standard Rav Four all wheel drive system. But it's still like it doesn't inspire a ton of confidence when you're out off-road, especially with that low-hanging front end, which just sticks way down there. So you know, I mean, what what you're trying to do, Tommy, is you're trying to get uh, a vehicle that's kind of the jack of all trade. And let me give you a, an example from the motorcycle world. Right, I've been riding bikes my whole life, and the last 20 years I've been riding adventure bikes. And whenever you look at an adventure bike. Um, as an adventure bike, you kind of think to yourself, how on-road and off-road worthy is this? So, like a classic adventure bike would be the Kawasaki KLR, uh, and then you know, motorcycle guys always discuss how, what, you know, how, how much is this like a dirt bike versus how much is it like a street bike, and you end up with this like compromise. So, like a KL, KLR Kawasaki might be, let's say. 50-50, so 50% of it might be good to use on-road and 50% of the time it might be good to use off-road. So it's kind of this great compromise. Um, but what ends up happening is when you use it on-road, because it's got knobby tires, it's not great in the rain. And when you use it off-road, because uh, you know it has um, a taller seating position, it has um, you know protection around it, it's, it, it also becomes compromised than on-road. And so you, it's, it, it's a compromise. And the same thing could be said for these vehicles, right? I mean, what you end up with is good fuel economy. Uh, you end up with good road manners, but uh, then they become a little compromised off-road because the same things that you need to be good on-road are the exact opposite things you need to be good off-road. But the good news here is that most people buying these vehicles really have no interest in actually taking them off-road. Uh, most of these folks are hipsters <laughs> who live in big cities who want to show their friends that, look, I'm adventurous. Um, well, that's of course, is, is being a little bit bold. But I think that is a lot of folks that just want to have the look of an off-roader, but yeah. don't want any of the capability. And that's really where uh, these mid-roaders make a lot of sense.
Yeah, I was listening to I, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts recently. I was listening to the regular Car Guy review podcast. Right, they they had a forerunner and they were talking about like who buys it, and they said this is not me, this is them saying it. It's a kind of it's a guy who wants like to prove to his girlfriend that he's you know outdoorsy, uh, and I'm not sure that I'm not sure that's fair. Uh, but maybe you know what you want is a, you know a car that's sporty and. Uh, at the same time works within the city because let's face it most people live in the city right and the stuff that makes uh, the vehicle good off-road those big bold and knobby tires you know the the, the big ground clearance you really don't need uh, driving around you know to, to pick up Starbucks now the engine in the RAV, the engine in the RAV4 is a 2.5 liter four-cylinder made it to an eight-speed automatic transmission. Um, it is, is a pretty good combo. Uh, the, the benefit of having an eight-speed traditional automatic transmission is that it's got a torque converter, which is uh, better off-road than a dual clutch like you find in the Hyundai Kias. Those overheat immediately. Um, it's better off-road than the CVTs and the Subarus. And it's not exactly a, a high-performance model, but it does pretty well. The kind of the big surprise in the RAV4 lineup, in my opinion, uh, is the hybrid and then more specifically the prime because they have the uh, torque from the electric motors they're able to climb stuff that you wouldn't believe because they've got a lot of instant response you don't have to wait for an engine to spool up and because none of these have the low range transfer case that that mechanical advantage is not there with the gas engine but it's got a lot of potential for greatness with electricity yeah and i agree so you know if, if you're a Toyota fanboy or fangirl, then there's a lot in that range of vehicles that make the RAV4 adventure, the mid-roader, make a lot of sense, right? So let's say you want something that's a little bit more hardcore off-road, then you can go to the 4Runner, or if you've got a lot of money, you can go to the Land Cruiser. So this has a lot of kind of bandwidth because it can go from being the Starbucks getter to kind of taking you on a dirt road and good in the snow and maybe doing a little bit of light off-roading. Uh, I think that's kind of the, the bandwidth of, of the RAV4. Uh, and, and I think it's, you know, I, I think it's honest. It is what it is. People understand it. I don't think people necessarily look at uh, the RAV4 and think they're buying a 4Runner, right? They understand that they're getting a vehicle that's a little bit more urban and less country. And I think it works. Uh, and I, I think also that Toyota is making a boatload of money on these trim levels because like you said most of them don't have a lot of mechanical like stuff you have to actually cost a lot of money to make or engineer right versus like color combinations and cladding and such yeah the second you start adding um, locking diffs and and different transfer units and, and that's where things get very very expensive very quickly so should we move on to the little jeeps uh, not yet. Let's move on to something you just said, which is actually pretty cool. Let's talk about Subaru. So, you know, the one we put in here, there's really kind of two you could talk about. You know, you could talk about the Forester, but the one we just recently reviewed is the one that actually kind of created the segment in some ways, the uh, Crosstrek XV. Right, Subaru took uh, basically a little commuter car, put a bunch of cladding on it, raised it up to 8.7 inches, uh, and made it look tough. Uh, and then, you know, did an entire marketing campaign based on, you know, taking the road less traveled. The thing about this vehicle, um, as with many of the Subarus, of course, is a three-letter word that just doesn't work off-road, which is CVT. Um, well, I think they've gotten better. They've gotten, they have gotten better over the years. So when we were starting out in 2010, the CVT was a pretty hopeless off-road because what happens is, in order to protect itself, it doesn't allow a lot of slippage off the line, and that is not good for crawling on rocks, through stumps. Uh, there, there really isn't a lot of torque delivery, especially in the old ones. 
right off of idle. And, and what, that, what that meant is that when you pointed them up a hill that was just a little bit too steep, the engine would hold 2,500 RPM, but the computer would basically say no, and it wouldn't allow uh, a lot of torque delivered to the wheels. Yeah, it wouldn't allow any wheel spin. It would cut power. And, I, and I've been doing a lot of thinking about this, and I think I had a little like breakthrough. So if you think about the best, most capable off-roaders, they are actually CVTs, right? Side-by-sides for the most part, except for the Honda Talon, and we review a lot of them, have a CVT. So do sleds, right? Snowmobiles have CVTs, and they all work really well off-road. But there's a big but, right? In a side-by-side, -side, like a Polaris or a Can-Am, the CVT uh, belt is a belt that is meant to be broken and is meant to be replaced, right? So many guys and gals who have these things carry extra belts. What'll happen is you can burn through that belt, and then if it breaks, uh, instead of breaking the engine, uh, you just replace the belt. It's a really great system. They're not that difficult to replace, uh, and you burn out the belt. In a car, it's not a belt on the CVT. It's a chain, right? It's buried deep within the powertrain. Uh, and if you break a chain in a CVT, you're looking at a very expensive repair. It's like basically rebuilding a transmission in a traditional car. Uh, and so what the software does in a Subaru, I suspect, and you know, I would love to talk to Subaru engineers about this, but once again, Subaru has blacklisted us because uh, they don't like the fact that we actually test their vehicles off-road, I'm guessing. Uh, but anyway, uh, what ends up happening is that to protect the, the, the chain in the CVT, the computer says, well, we're going to cut power to the wheels. Uh, and then you have a vehicle that if you're in, under certain circumstances, like in loose sand or loose dirt, where you need a lot of power, it just won't give you that power. It won't spin the wheels because you don't want to break that belt. So Actually, the, break the chain. The new ones are better at sending power Triple to the X mode? Well, we had a 2018 Outback that we bought as a long-term mm -hmm. And it was a four-cylinder, um, just, you know, run-of-the-mill one. And we took it up Goldmine Hill, and it, it, we ran into that issue where it wouldn't allow, you know, yeah, that, that it, it did the same thing that the first one did. But then Andre and I rented the latest generation of Outback. Yeah. And we rented it off of a nice lady in Turo who said, yeah, you can take it out into yeah. the dirt. Yeah. And that one was also just kind of the run-of-the-mill one. It wasn't the Onyx or the New Wilderness. Right. And that one was better than the generation we had. I mean, it was noticeably better. It still doesn't have the crawl ratio that you'd kind of expect out of the marketing that Subaru pushes, but it is more usable when the going gets tough, from our experience. I mean, we even compared it to uh, like the Andre the Old Outback on the same hill. He has like a 2015, and it was better at modulating at slower speeds. I'm glad they're improving it, and that's, um, you know, I think a uh, 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 uh a plus and uh, a slap in the back we have to give to Subaru because now maybe the vehicle is actually living up to the marketing campaign. The one thing I will say, Tommy, is I think the best way that sums it up is we got an email maybe like a week ago, and I think we put it up on the community page where somebody wrote us uh, and, and, and the guy said, hey, uh, I'm looking to upgrade my Subaru. Uh, you know, I'm wheeling with my friends and I want to be able to go where like my friends in their Jeeps and their foreigners can go. And that's really where you're hitting the limit, right? right, where, where the rubber meets the road, because it, a lot of people, especially here in Colorado, will lift Subarus, uh, and they're incredibly capable, but at some point, without a low range, and this is with all these vehicles, you're gonna run into kind of a hard point on the trail that you will not be able to get across. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great point. Now, they've really been pushing some more rugged versions, so like there's now the Outback Onyx. And the Wilderness. Which is a skid plate, and then above that, there's the Wilderness 
which has the basically the drivetrain out of the Ascent, so it's got a, 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 a slightly better crawl ratio. I mean, the CVT is always going to hamper the performance. Even though I did say the new ones are better, it still is not as good as a traditional automatic transmission. So, for example, um, you know, something like a Honda Passport, which is not often regarded as a as an off-roader, in my opinion, is better off-road than pretty much any Subaru I've driven. Uh, guys, and Tommy, I am just confounded. Like, we, every time we do a Subaru video, and we just put up one recently, uh, every other comment is, I would buy one in a heartbeat if it didn't have a CVT. And yet, for some reason, even with the New Wilderness, Subaru is like, I don't know if it's like a Japanese thing, I don't know if it's like a company, like this is part of our core identity thing, but they are so, like, not double down, but quadruple down on CVTs. And it's funny, even Nissan is moving away from the CVT, right? I think Nissan is listening to their customers. So Nissan recently unveiled a new Pathfinder, and, you know, the number one comment on our video was, thank God they got rid of the CVT. And I understand CVTs are um, much more fuel efficient, right? Yeah. Let's, let's face it, I mean, they, they were invented back, what, in the 60s? Uh, uh, and then, of course, you know, the Germans kind of tried them and said, no, no, we're not going to do it. Uh, but for some reason, Subaru and Nissan, like, like took to them like uh, duck to water. Uh, uh, and I think I just want to I just want to like talk to the people at uh, Subaru and like I want to go hey guys th this is really holding back your sales just put a regular transmission into it I think they'll disagree you I think, think I think Subarus are selling like gangbusters right now they're really doing well because the people that are buying Subarus are not the folks listening to this podcast for the most part they are people that see the advertisement and they like what Subaru represents and they like the dog friendly thing so, and they don't care what the transmission is as long as it works and it gets them down the road and it gets them to work and it goes through the snow who cares what the transmission is and if it gets 33 plus MPG even better I, I disagree Tommy I think that they're playing in a ballpark that's the minor leagues where they could be playing in the major leagues and I'll even prove that right the most popular car in America right now is the RAV4 the Toyota RAV4 right does it have a CVT no how many units do they sell? I want to say they sell over 400,000, it's like 440,000 units, almost a half a million RAV4s, right? And th that dwarfed the amount of Outbacks that Subaru is selling. And, yeah. I, and I think if they were to go mainstream, if you know, at some point, right, what, what Subaru did, which was brilliant from a marketing standpoint, right, they, they took this quirky brand, which was very quirky, right? Remember when the, we had the old DL and it still had the spare tire on top of the engine? Right, so they took they took this really quirky brand, which was like you know spare tire on top of the engine, boxer engine, right, which nobody else has, kind of funky styling, and they slowly moved it into the mainstream. So they went from like a core group of buyers, you know, in Vermont and in Colorado, into a much broader group. But but they're having a hard time going like Rav Four because of the CVT. I think I disagree. The CVT that has almost nothing to do with it for the people that are buying. First of all, if because if we look at if you want to go off sales, yeah, you know what was. In some cases, one of the best-selling um, that was slightly less than RAV4, but an, it just sold hundreds of thousands every year, the Rogue. And the Rogue has a CVT, and that didn't put buyers off the Rogue. Last, last, uh, sorry, this March, Subaru sold 65,726 vehicles, Subaru of America. I mean, it was their best March ever, according to their press release here. And I but honestly... that's also for a lot of brands. That's not, you know, once again... Yeah, the rising tide rises I don't know how boats. this march was with uh, other vehicles. I mean, we were talking about Silverado's been really struggling. Uh, I, and, and I, I dare you to compare Subaru sales to like. Uh, well, sure, but that Toyota. The, the Blazer, Tommy. Look at look at the Blazer. Okay. Look look at the Blazer sales. 
which we, by the way, don't think is also a great off-roader, but nevertheless, look, I just, at, I look really, at laser sales. I really don't think that people care about the CBT. I, I, think, I, think, that I think us enthusiasts do. We're like, oh, but no, folks no, no. that are I, buying it, they just want it to be fuel efficient and good in I the snow. I think people care. I think it's not just enthusiasts. I think people care. And I'm going out. I'm not saying that because I'm, I'm but that you, you know, pulling that out of thin air. I'm saying that because I read our comments and, and every other comment. But our is, comments are car and truck people. They are enthusiasts. There's not, my mom is not watching her yeah, videos and her mom the, likes the one, one, of, one of the great things about, you know, having multiple channels is we're not putting Subaru videos on to TFL truck. We're putting on a TFL car and there's a lot of different people on there. But there's like people my, who, who buy electric cars, who have, right, that have no transmission. There are people that buy uh, cars with, you know, dual clutch transmissions. There are people who buy cars with automatics. Uh, and I'm just saying from that slice of car buyers, Every comment is, I can't stand the CVT. And I know what you're saying. You're saying it's well because we only have people who you know are truck buyers. I disagree. I think it's everybody. No, I disagree once again because I think people watching our TFL car channel, Dad, they're not. They're they're all car people. Like my friend Coralie, yeah. not a car person at all, but loves Subarus. Her dream car is a Subaru Wilderness. She saw that come out, and and I said, well, what about the CVT? She said, what's a CVT? And and she just she loves the look. Yeah, of I'm it. not. I'm not disagreeing. I'm saying there's a certain percentage of people who really don't care about the transmission, but I think they've run into kind of this like limiter. Like, you know, I used to do triathlon, right? And the limiter in terms of adoption of the sport was what? What do you think? Three sports, swim, bike, S run. Swimming. Yeah, it was always swimming because you could get people to run, you can get people to bike, but getting people to, to swim, you know, especially an Ironman, you know, a couple of miles is not going to happen because most people are just not going to be able to or have the time to or want to be able to, you know, learn to swim two miles efficiently. Um, so that's always limiter, and I think the Subaru is running into that limiter now with the CVT. But we could—I could be wrong. I'm I not. think I think the other thing to keep in mind, Dad, is that may, perhaps the reason that the manufacturers went away from the CVT is not because it was impacting sales, but maybe it's a reliability thing. You know, we have heard, especially of the older Nissan CVTs having major reliability issues after you know 50, well, 60, 70,000 miles. I think the reliability issue that Subaru is having isn't the CVT as much as the uh, Boxer. Right, the horizontally opposed engine that starts to burn oil at about 100,000 miles. Andre just had a had an experience with that. He's gotten out back with over 100,000 miles, and that thing is drinking oil like it's no tomorrow. Yeah, but um, I mean, I think when when you're talking about, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably an enthusiast. When you're going off road, yes, the CBT is still a big issue, and it it does definitely hamper. Even though it's gotten better, it does definitely hamper. Um, its ability to to hit the the trail. My my, you know, obviously. You know, as somebody who is the publisher of this channel uh, that works with every manufacturer, we really try to be as fair as possible. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't want to come across as sounding like sour grapes. And, of course, every time we talk about Subaru, people point out the fact that, well, you know, it's, it's Roman and he's, he's, he's kind of, I hate this term, but, you know, upset about, I'm not even going to use the term, upset about the fact that Subaru doesn't work with us. And that's true, Tommy. So maybe I can't be the most objective person in the world. And their sales have been going up, but I really try hard to take my emotions out of it. Um, I just, you know, like in the latest video, uh, they, I believe they took uh, the New Wilderness up um, Imogene, right? It looks yeah. like it was Imogene. Uh, and that's a car that I probably wouldn't want to take up on Imogene. I'm not saying you can't do it, but it's probably it's it, it, it the marketing seems to be ahead of the of the ability of the car at least according to the testing that we've done. So it looks like they sold six thousand Blazers last month. Yeah, and twenty one thousand Foresters. Okay. So I I think that it's doing pretty well. You sure it's only six thousand? This is my goodcarbadcar.net. Okay. And this was saying month six thousand. 
Okay. I'm, I'm not disagreeing. I thought that Blazer sold more than that. I mean, they sold 84,000 F-Series in that same period. <laughs> but yeah, Blazer... All right, well, let's keep going. I think we've beaten this, this horse enough. Let's talk about the Jeeps. Uh, so, yeah. So we want to talk about two Jeeps. We want to talk about the Renegade, uh, which doesn't have a low range, and the Cherokee, which does, or at least certain certain versions of it do, right? So you can get you can, so the Renegade uh, in a way is more of a direct competitor with the Crosstrek and maybe the Bronco Sport, whereas the Cherokee is kind of more of a tweener. It's kind of kind of kind of its own thing. So the difference, of course, between the Renegade is uh, that there is no low range, even though Renegade can be trail rated. I don't want to go into the whole trail rated thing. That's another podcast in itself. Uh, because uh, it does have this little like switch where you can pick different kinds of terrain, right? And and then it does have kind of this. I'm not calling it a fake diff lock, but basically what what you can do is you can lock it in first gear, right? So the you, you put it in low range and it basically locks it in first gear. But there is no physical transfer case that multiplies the torque of the engine. Uh, and sends more power to the wheels. So it does have a, a, a relatively sophisticated terrain management system where it knows like, hey, I'm on rocks or I'm in sand, so I need to you know, distribute torque differently. Uh, but if you really do want the one that you, know, you can take into some serious off-road, go for the Cherokee, which does have a true uh, low-range transfer case. Um, so the Renegade, it, there's, there's two different deals here. There's all-wheel drive lock, there's a low range, and then there's a diff lock. Um, and we should probably clarify the, the differences between them, okay? Um, because I think I think that kind of yeah. Why don't we Why don't we go back to basics? It's a good idea. Yeah, exactly. So most of the crossovers are front wheel drive based until there's some kind of slip or you're you're going on the throttle or you and that's know, for fuel economy reasons. Yeah, for fuel economy, right? And then it will engage the rear axle. So um, like in in the Renegades and the the uh, the Compass and the, the Cherokee, they've got a mode called like all wheel drive lock. And then what that does is it, is it does its best to simulate like putting a truck into four high. So it does its best to lock the front and the rear axles at the same speed, which is supposed to be like, you know, more permanent four wheel drive. Whether or not it does that, I mean, most of these systems have some kind of clutch, um, something called like a, a power transfer unit that sends power to the rear. Uh, so whether or not it actually locks is, is a little bit fishy, but it is, it is something that is capable of doing so. Now, when you talk about the four low, the, uh, Cherokee, I think, is the only vehicle in its class to have a proper, um, it's not really a transfer case, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, a second set of low gear reduction gears. So you, you stick it in low and then it's like putting a Wrangler into four low. And the way it works is it's got this crazy power transfer unit in the rear with an additional set of gears, it's nuts. Um, but that does multiply the torque. Uh, the Renegade does not have a proper low range. That's what you're talking about. When yeah, you click the you low put, button. When, when you put the low, basically, it doesn't put it in four low the way you would think about it. It just locks it in first gear. Exactly right. Yeah. Um, and then the, Ren the Cherokee also has a rear differential lock. And the differential lock is important because it locks both rear wheels together at the same speed. And that is crucial when you're off-road because when you get it tippy and articulated with an open diff, all the power just goes spinning in the wheel that's in yeah, the so air. Let me, if you're watching this, let me do something with my hands to kind of demonstrate the difference. So some systems have clutches. So imagine me putting my two hands together and kind of holding them together. And then there is a way either using like viscous fluid uh, where you can keep those two clutches together so that uh, like my arms, my elbows would be attached to the wheel so that it locks the wheels so that they're both spinning at the same rate. That would be kind of a way you could simulate a true locking rear diff. However, a locking rear diff in the traditional sense, now see if you're looking at this in the podcast, 
if you're listening to this, it's hard to imagine, but imagine me taking my fingers and locking my fingers together. Those are the gears meshing. And then obviously that's a true locker, right? Then, then you, if, if, if you, um, if you like get in the position where one of the wheels hits a rock, uh, they will both keep spinning at the same time and you could break a tooth, I suppose, but with you have the two clutches with the two hands together, you can get slippage. And that's the difference between like a true locker, a mechanical locker versus like using some kind of a clutch system to do well, that. Well, and a clutch system is typically used in like a limited slip uh, situation. Yeah. But keep in mind, Dad, that a lot of these crossovers don't even have those clutches in the back. Right. A lot of them are just pure open diffs. And then the way they, they, they uh, actually send power left and right is by squeezing the brakes. So Jeep calls it brake lock differential, where you clamp down on one brake and, and then the power gets sent power. power to the wheel. And the reason you have to do that is because uh, if you lock it in a mechanical way with my fingers locked like gears, then the outside wheel has to travel further than the inside wheel when you're going around a turn. Uh, and then if they're locked, what ends up happening is one of those wheels has to slip and you get what's called crabbing. Right, because the, the wheels are spinning at the same rate. And that's why vehicles have open diffs, because if you think about a vehicle going around a corner, the outside wheel always has to travel further, so it has to turn more than the inside wheel. Now, in the Jeep family, uh, the most off-road worthy ones have um, uh, an option, they're, they're called Trailhawks. So it's like the Trailhawk package. Right. And the Trailhawk package typically gives you like a little bit more ground clearance. Um, sometimes it gives you a more aggressive gearing. Better tires. Better tires, yeah, it gives you recovery points. That's a big deal too, which true off-roaders have recovery points. Subarus typically don't have recovery points. Neither does like the RAV4 Adventure, by the way. But uh, yeah, the Trailhawks typically have recovery points, which are tow hooks in case you get stuck. Uh, it gives I, you different- Let's talk about why that's important. Not because, not just it helps you get unstuck, but if you're stuck and you don't have a recovery point, let's say that you're using, which you shouldn't be using, let's say that the only thing you can do is you, okay, now the vehicle's stuck, let's say it's stuck in mud or in sand or something, and you gotta pull it out of there, right? If you have a big hook, you can just hook to that big hook, and that hook is attached to the body of the vehicle, so you're not gonna pull the fender off or you're not gonna per, pull a wheel off, right? If you don't have those recovery hooks or recovery points, where do you attach it? Well, so most vehicles have a little like screw and eyelet. Yeah, but those are usually for traveling. Those are for the roll-on, roll-off boats, right? Yeah, it's like transporting. Um, it's to transport them so that they don't move or on a boat or on a truck. And like on a, when, when you're dealing with recovery points, there's different ratings. So like that little hook that you screw into your hole may be decent for holding it down on a tow truck. But if you try yanking it, you might end up ripping it out of the bumper or ripping the, uh, the front cross member off of the bumper. And so bad stuff can happen, whereas a recovery point is basically you know, mounted directly to the quote-unquote old metal well, hook. It's mounted quote-unquote to the frame or the unibody. Yeah. So that thing's going to take take the abuse of being pulled and yanked, and it's not going to damage it. So if you're talking about like recovery points, like the the Cherokee Trailhawk has it, the Compass Trailhawk has it, and they it. always paint them like red to show. The Renegade it. Trailhawk has yeah. it. The Bronco Sport certain trims have it. It's like it's like how do you tell a vampire? Well, it's got those pointy teeth, right? How do you tell an off roader? It's got red tow hooks. So vehicles that don't have it, I've never seen a Subaru with a proper recovery hook, at least on the newer stuff. The Rav4 doesn't have it. The Chevy Trailblazer has a fake one. That's an interesting thing. It's got like this little plastic nub that's supposed you, to look like you're gonna one. Pull it, you're going to pull that off if you attach a tow rope to it? But yeah, the Trailhawks are very good off-road, and they also have select terrain, traction management. So, uh, and this is another big trend that we've seen in this class, where basically you turn a knob and then it, it, it puts the car in a certain mode for sand driving or rock driving or mud driving. And I think they pretty much all have it now, but it's, it's largely software. Yeah, and then the other thing that most serious off-roaders have is uh, 
they're tested to a certain depth of water fording, right? Because when you're off-road, chances are, and we've done this a lot, you're going to have to cross a stream, a river, something, right? Mud. Uh, and if you get water into most vehicles, you're going to total that vehicle because what ends up happening is uh, there's two things that, that, that water does that's bad. First, a lot of the vehicles have uh, computers, right? electronics that are sensitive to getting wet mm -hmm. uh, and then of course the other thing is you need to have the ability to keep water out of the engine because a lot of vehicles the best place to get air into the engine is underneath either at the front which is you know in the, um, the you know by the radiator which is going to get water in to the air into the engine if you're crossing a river or fording a stream or actually lower than that underneath the car right uh, or behind that like front front uh, uh, wheel right a lot of them take air in underneath behind the front wheels uh, and that's also bad if you're on a dirt road because you're gonna get a lot of dirt in there so serious off-roaders will somehow have the ability to to change where that air is going into the engine things like the let's say the alternator which you don't want to get wet will also be mounted up higher uh, you'll even in Australia it's very popular in Africa you'll have a snorkel uh, and then those electronics will be mounted up higher uh, and most mid-rotors you know, don't have any of that. So you don't want to really cross or, or ford anything deeper than like a puddle. So the deal with like, let's let's keep going on this subject because I think it's interesting. The deal with the select terrain systems, mm -hmm. um, for the most part, I, I find it to be mostly marketing. In some cases, it changes the all-wheel drive programming and the traction control programming to better suit different terrains. So, so Land Rover is, really works. I would say Land Rover system isn't marketing. Well, they've, they've pioneered it in like yeah. the early 2000s. Yeah. Um, and, and the idea is like when you're in mud, for example, you want some wheel spin, right? Yeah. You want that thing that's to spin up. You want to clear the mud out of the, of the little tire grooves. The nubs, the yes. The nubs so that it grabs. But when you're on the rocks, you don't want that spin. Right. You want, and, and that's the idea. You can dial it in. Super uses X mode, which for the most part doesn't do much in my opinion. Um, it, it does a little bit, but not much. Uh, Jeep uses this little spinny, terrainy thing, which doesn't do much in my opinion. The Toyota RAV4 has buttons, which don't do much in my opinion, a and, little bit. And the Ford Bronco Sport, the baby Bronco, has goat mode. Yeah, goat mode is the same thing. Those did do something. That was Goes pretty impressive. Goes over any terrain. Yeah, exactly. Goat mode. The Toyota system does a little bit. I should that, be... Talk about marketing. You know what, which one works well, actually? What? The Mazda system. The Mazda's got this little linguine noodle button. It looks like the, this car driving over a linguine noodle, which yeah. is supposed to be rocks. You push that, and that, that makes a pretty big difference. Um, but for the most part, it's, it's a cheap and easy way for a company to add, quote-unquote, more capability without really engineering and skid plates and Yeah, and, and then like, like, like Jeep and Land Rover obviously uh, do a lot of off-road testing. So if a vehicle is trail-rated, right, which you can get a Cherokee or Renegade trail-rated, it is designed to, to, to meet certain criteria of approach, departure, water fording, uh, and they are tested. Uh, and so it's nice to have a vehicle where there actually is like a set of criteria that the vehicle has to meet in order to get that trail-rated badge. Yep. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of exact opposite of having marketing. Whereas uh, be, like, your, be your guide. Like, like the Toyota system is... It gives you rocks on the screen, right? And, and I, but apart from that, in the real world, I haven't noticed that much of a difference. Land Rover does work well, though, especially with the air suspension. They can height adjust. Yeah, uh, and you can make it. You can make the vehicle taller, so you could ford deeper water. Yep. The other, now the other thing we need to talk about, I think, if we're talking going down this rabbit hole, Tommy, is uh, like basically let's call it uh, off-road cruise control, right? Those little oh. buttons. Or hill descent. Or hill descent, which is kind of the same thing. Every car now has to hill yeah. descent. That was like a BMW X3 or something. They had 22s and it hill descent. I and I, I don't like it. I don't use it 
for the most part, it, it you know, it seems to be, it, it, look, it, it, what, it, what usually it does is it locks the vehicle into a speed. So you don't have to modulate the gas pedal or if you're in an electric car, the throttle pedal. Uh, what you do is you say, hey, I want this thing to go, uh, usually it's between one and five miles an hour, and then uh, basically it uses terrain management system to keep you moving at that speed. Uh, I find that a little uh, disconcerting. I'd rather modulate the speed myself, but if you're um, you know, new to off-roading, it does make it a little bit less um, dangerous. And let, let me give you an example of that. We were just in Moab doing the Moab Rim, and there's this one obstacle called the Devil's Crack, uh, which is basically on the side of a cliff uh, so you've got like this 500 to 1,000 foot fall onto the road and then into the river. Uh, and if you're modulating your speed yourself uh, and you get that wrong, you are going to fly off the cliff, right? Mm. If you hit the accelerator too hard, <laughs> no amount of braking is going to you know, keep you from going down the cliff. And so in that case, I, I suspect it would be much nicer. So Especially coming down, right? Not going up. Going up, you're probably going to go flying up the mountain. But coming down, if you don't make that turn, you're going to go over the cliff. Yeah, I dislike it. It's nice to have, but I've, I've never really felt it it's, to be all that. Once again, it's, you know, it's always, I always feel like you have more control using the brake and then sticking the transmission in, like, first gear. It's software. Yeah, it's all software for the most part. For the most part, yeah. So um, I want to talk about a couple other honorary mentioned vehicles. All right, before, let's, before we, we get to the Bronco, baby Bronco. Yes. Okay. Um, probably the biggest off-road surprise that I've driven all year is the little itty-bitty Chevy Trailblazer. This is a three-cylinder Korean-built crossover, little tiny thing, that you would never expect to be. Which is weird because the Trailblazer used to be a big old it's American very V8. Yeah. It's a mess. But they do one called the Active, yeah. um, and the Active had a real skid plate, which wow. I was like astonished by. It had pretty decent little off-road tires on it, and it was kind of a beast off-road. For, for being as little and kind of um, you know plucky as it is, I was pretty blown away by how good it was, and it's also cheap. Um, now, the other ones I want to talk about are the old the Hyundais and the, the, the Kias. With the, with, the, with the dual clutch? So thing. Hyundai and Kia make a very good all-wheel drive system, but the cars do not work very well off-road because of the transmission. They use a, this, this tech called dual, a dual-clutch transmission, which is kind of like what you'd find on... A race know. car. Or yeah, sport. a race they, car or something. Usually, they're usually reserved. The Germans went dual clutch for a long time. On oh, all they, their really high-performance cars. And they found out that people hated them in stop-and-go traffic, that they overheated, and that they were really herky-jerky, and then they went back to regular torque converters. So with the dual clutch, uh, and you know, Jeremy Clarkson, I think, did the best analogy of this I've ever heard. It's basically like you have a butler, and you're in first gear, and he's got the second gear ready to give hand to you, right? So the second you want second gear, it's right there. There's no torque converter. There's nothing that allows the engine to actually slip a little bit. And so you're always in a gear. The issue with, <laughs> the, issue with the, the dual clutch systems is there's no torque converter. And basically, when, I just said that. when you're trying to go slow, they're just slipping clutches. Right. So they get really hot and they start to smell really bad. So like the Kia Seltos has a good all-wheel drive system. I mean, it's good at distributing power. But when you're off-road, it's just like... I mean, it's, it's constantly fighting you. And then eventually it says transmission overheated. Yeah, and same thing happened actually with the Ridgeline. Well, that was a little bit of a different story. That's that was, good. That was a that we were just taking that on a trail that was far too hard for it. And, and we're talking about overheating transmissions because that's one of the issues that the baby Bronco has experienced, at least in other reporting. We didn't get that. Not the transmission. It's it's okay. So let's 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 let's, let's power transfer unit. Yeah, we're gonna get deep in the woods here. So go for it, Tommy. Well, so the Bronco. Let's baby talk about Bron the okay the Bronco the Bronco Sport, Sport the baby the, Bronco the little one. Yeah. yeah, that's the one we have at our office. That's the one that's currently at dealers. It's based on, like you mentioned, the Ford Escape platform, um, but there's a few different trims of it. And depending on the trim, 
that will change the off-road capability. So the base trim um, is, is all-wheel drive with a little three-cylinder, but it uses a pretty rudimentary all-wheel drive system. Now the way that the Bronco works, it's front-wheel drive biased, and then the there's baby a, Bronco works. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just gonna say the baby Bronco. The sport, the way that the sport works is that there's um, front-wheel drive bias, eight-speed automatic, and a little clutch bolted to the end of the eight-speed automatic called the PTU, and that clutch is in charge of sending power to the rear axle. That's what distributes the power to the rear wheels. Well, on the, the base trims, that clutch is not liquid-cooled. If you get like the top-end first edition or like the, the Badlands... Which is what we have, the yeah, first edition. it's got liquid cooling on it because when you're off-road, that clutch is going to be pretty active and then it gets hot. And, and we've heard reports that it will overheat if you are pushing it too hard. We, having, did, not, we did not see that, though. Now, having said that, we, we took it up uh, Tombstone. It like aced it. I mean, it, it... Oh, it was crazy. It was crazy. It did not struggle. And then we thought, well, you know what? Let's go take this thing up Cliffhanger 1.0, give it a real test. But it was too snowy. It was too snowed in. We couldn't get up there. But we did have access at the beginning of Cliffhanger 2.0. Yeah, it, we had this gnarly little climb. And yeah, yet the thing was a... I was genuinely shocked yeah, with how did, good it was. It did really well. So goat mode actually worked. And... Um, uh, Going, keep going on in the weeds here. The base Bronco also in the rear diff has a single clutch to distribute torque left and right. The the the, the expensive ones like we the had, first had edition, yeah. twin clutch units. And GM actually uses this in some of their other vehicles too, but it's, a, it's two clutches and it simulates, like you mentioned, a locker too. Pushes the clutches together so you can get similar speeds. Honestly, like I was, for just being a little car, uh, that not body and frame with independent suspension, it did really well. The gearing still isn't quite low enough for actual rock crawling, but it has skid plates, it has recovery points, and it's got a good all-wheel drive system, probably one of the best in ever, at least in that, that class. Yeah, so I, I agree with you, Tommy. Out of all the ones we've tested out of the mid-rotors, right, uh, the ones that are the, the, the soft rotors that have you know off-road aspirations beyond just going on dirt road, I think it was top of the top of the pile. I would say it was really, really good in terms of what it could do. Uh, we didn't push it all that hard because, look, we're still in spring and there's a lot of snow in Colorado, so, you know, I, I, I wonder what would happen if we, like, took it to Moab and actually, you know, spent a lot of time wheeling it. I don't know. I uh, would love to try that. Uh, but, you know, in terms of uh, all the ones we've tested, it by far did the best. I think one of the reasons that it had proper ATs, right, all-terrains, which yep. is a huge thing. Um, I don't think it's good as a, I don't think it's as good as the Cherokee because the Cherokee is a real lower. Yeah, range I think the Cherokee is better and a real locker. Yeah, the Cherokee is better. Compared uh, to like, so we've got this test called the slip test yeah. where we get the thing stuck in rollers on purpose to see how the all-wheel drive system works. Uh, compared to like the Subaru Crosstrek, even with X mode on, well, the Bronco Sport just walked it. I mean, it, it got through every test I could. I, I tried to get it stuck with three wheels and two wheels, um, one wheel on the ground, and it just. Whoosh, would walk right off. Yeah, Ian's editing that video right now, so it'll be up on TFL Off-Road soon if you want to see how it did. And how would you compare it to the uh, uh, RAV4 Adventure? Well, Off-Road is better. Yeah. It certainly is better. I don't think it's as well assembled. I don't, I just, I get the impression that if you were to off-road this thing regularly like you would with the... Like it, a, it might start, pieces might start coming Yes, a I loose. just, it didn't feel, I hate to say it didn't feel that well screwed together compared to like the Toyota. Um, but the capability is definitely there. I think it's better than the Renegade off-road. I think it's better than the, the Compass. Renegade and the Compass are pretty much the same. Not as good as the Cherokee, but 
when it comes to a crossover. It's it's very good. Would I want to take it off-road regularly? No, but it will definitely get you to the cooler camping spots than your friend in the, uh, I think, than the Forester. Yeah, and then talking about the other things, it does have real recovery hooks, and ours had the tow package, so while you shouldn't be pulling a, a vehicle using the tow a hook, you can if the, the worst comes to worst. Tow hitch. Tow hitch, it's better than, like, you know, sticking a rope around the rear axle. Yeah. <laughs> or a suspension member. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Uh, and it's also kind of boxy. You know, I have this theory that if you want to make something really off-roady, make it as boxy as possible. The square, the more square style-wise, the more off-roady it is. And I've got, you know, I've got proof of that, I think. Look at the Wrangler. Look at the old Hummer, right? Look at the most off-road ve worthy vehicles you can. Even the Bronco. They're pretty boxy. Right? Look, you know what it looks like? It looks like a cross between the first-generation Ford Escape... Yeah. And the, it does. It looks it's got a lot of Ford Escape. In and it. the Land Rover Freelander. I see a lot of Freelander in this. That's thing. another one. The, the old Defender. It was just a box. It was square, right? Yep. Also very square. No, I was very impressed with it. I think it's ridiculously expensive. At least the one we have is forty grand, thirty nine six fifty five. It was a launch edition, which basically gives you like all the packages. So Ford has done this really, I think, smart marketing move and giving you know different kinds of trim levels, and they named it after. Uh, interesting places, right? So like the Badlands, the Sasquatch, the Outer Bank, right? Yeah, it's good. Uh, and the the first edition gives you all the off-road goodies, so it's as it's as loaded as possible. But at forty thousand dollars, it's a lot of money. It's not going to be as good, I think, as the Big Bronco. I mean, Here, here's my yeah, it's not going to be as good as, as, as the Big Bronco. Here's my problem with the forty thousand dollars. You can get a Wrangler for that. And you can get a pretty nice Wrangler for that. Sure. And, and, and even a base Wrangler will go farther than a Bronco Sport. But uh, the Wrangler is also going to be more uncomfortable and more Yeah, sure. It's like driving a brick into the wind. Yeah, the fuel thirsty. economy is going to be not great. It, uh, like you said, it's more compromised. Solid axle. It's much more compromised. For regular off-roading, I still wouldn't take the Bronco Sport. Even though it's very impressive for what it is, I think you're going to start overheating stuff if you're planning on long trails of, of hard terrain. Because, it, like you said, it doesn't have a, a low range. So you're, you're putting a lot of stress on that first gear and that transmission. But How about the interior? Did you like the way it was designed inside? Yeah, it's okay. I yeah. mean, I like ours at 40K. But I was poking around online looking at the base ones, and if you spend less, you really get less. Like plastic steering wheels, even for uh, more uh, money than you'd but, expect. But ours had some really thoughtful touches that, for instance, our, def our, our Defender has. So when you uh, put the seats down, there's kind of this, instead of having like, you know, bad carpet on, on the back of the seats, right? It's got this kind of plastic, which yeah, is Yeah, it's great. got like a rubber mat, which is Like a rubber cool. mat, so if you throw like a big, let's say, Bernie's Mountain Dog inside there, uh, you know, it doesn't get the carpet all yucked up. Uh, it also has uh, rubber floor mats. Uh, ours, no, ours had cloth floor mats. It didn't have rubber floor but mats. But it has rubber floors. It has rubber floors. Which yeah, I like the cool. Defender, yeah. Very cool, yeah. Um, it's got these cool little like cargo lights in the, in the back which you can move around and spit about. I mean, I think it's a, it's a cool little thing. And they took a page out of uh, Jeep's book. There's a lot of little like Easter eggs hidden everywhere. Right? Tons of if them. you have one, look look where the gas cap is. There's a surprise there. Open up the gas cap and look under there. You'll find something really cool. Tons of little Easter eggs. Yes, for sure. I think it's going to fit a lot of people's lifestyles better than the bigger Bronco. Everyone wants a bigger Bronco, but uh, this makes more sense for more people. Are we forgetting any of these mid-rotors that, that, you know, that, that are out there? For, for the most part, Tommy, it's funny, the Germans uh, don't really do anything. Like we just had the, I'm thinking of the Atlas Base Camp, which was a bit of a disappointment in terms of off-roading, not in terms of like a regular car, but the, the Atlas Base Camp was this like real off-roady uh, 
concept that they rolled out, and then when the actual vehicle came out, it became basically a complete appearance package. Yeah, the Honda Passport and Pilot have an excellent all-wheel drive system. It's called IVTM4. It's incredible. Very good, actually, off-road. Not enough clearance or good tires, but it's it, it can be made to be pretty impressive. CRV is not very good off-road. And then all the Mitsubishis have this like locking center diff. I'm not sure it's a real locking center diff. I don't diff. think it even is a set. Yeah. Right, but they have that button. I think it, it's a little... Uh, we, we did actually, we took the Eclipse Cross off-road when it first came out, and Nathan was blown away by it. That had a CBT, and that one didn't cut power, which was cool. Yeah. So that was actually pretty impressive for what it was. Um, I'm trying to... Does the new one have a CVT? I don't think so, right? They went to a... No, it's got a CVT. Does it? Yeah. Well, at least the, uh, the Eclipse Cross does. Yeah, we just, we just drove it and I forget already. Oh my gosh. I'm... Yeah, the, I, think, I think they all do. I think the Big Outlander has one too. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that that does. Um, Nissan... So Mazdas, you said you like Mazdas, Mazda right? has a good overdrive system. Another one that doesn't have enough clearance or good tires or underbody protection. The Rogue is really um, it's not more of an on-roader than an off-roader right now. That would compete in the same segment. Yeah, Rogue is not too good. Um, I think we pretty much covered it. Like I said, the Germans really don't do off-roaders except for the G-Wagon, which is odd, but they don't. They used to. Yeah, the like the... Um, <laughs> the the, the first-generation Turag. You know, the, the Volvo XC40 is pretty good. Yeah. Nathan and Andre took that off-road and were very impressed by it. Uh, that was pretty cool. Volvo does a good system. Um, the Volkswagen, they got discontinued it, but the Golf, the little wagon, the all-track was pretty good. That was pretty good, yeah. For what it was. For yeah, not enough ground clearance, not enough. It, it's more of a station wagon. Let's face it. Um, you know, station wagons are out of vogue right now, so um, even the Subaru uh, Outback, which is basically a station wagon, has turned into kind of a real uh, crossover. It's got station wagon styling, but it's really a crossover. And then, of course, when you get to the really big stuff, like the Defender's very good off-road, the, yeah. the the bigger Range Rovers are pretty good off-road if you get good tires on them. Yeah, but then you're talking, you're, you're, you know, a Defender starts at just under 50K, so yeah. you're talking a lot big more money. Big money, yep, very uh, different class. Uh, but but you can get a Wrangler for, I think, 27000 so you can, if you really want to, and let's face it, Tommy, even a base Wrangler, the Sport, right, which mm -hmm. doesn't have... The stuff that Rubicon has is really good off-road. I mean, we had the JK, uh, which is a last-generation sport, and I took it up uh, a trail called Top of the World uh, in Moab, which is, you know, a pretty hardcore trail, and it, it did just fine. It's good, yeah, yeah, oh, for sure, yeah. And they're lightweight, too. Let's see what the cheapest Wrangler on Auto Trader is. Curious. All right. Nice. Lowest. It is... And brand new. You're looking brand new. Brand new, brand yeah, new. yeah, for sure. New. Yeah. Um, and I then, think... of and then I, I would I would be, be you know there I, it is twenty five nine there you go yeah soft top soft top manual transmission two door yeah and probably would, no air conditioning though. I would be completely remiss if I didn't mention this because uh, it's true you can uh, get almost any pickup at least here in Colorado if you're in the south you might be able to find some two wheel drive ones or in California we really don't get two wheel drive ones but you could find almost any pickup that will be much better. I mean a lot better than any of these vehicles that we discussed off-road because a pickup will, for the most part, it's changing, but for the most part, will have a true low range, will come with uh, all-terrain tires, especially if it's an off-roady one, right? So, so for $25,000, uh, you, could, you could get a pretty seriously good off-road Colorado or, you know, pick your midsize pickup of choice and, and they'll be really good off-road. Yep, very good Ranger point. actually, you know, for 40K, uh, that's that's what I kept thinking to myself. When I was test driving the, the Bronco Sport off-road, I thought this is really good, the baby Bronco, right? But I thought for 40K, I could get a hell of a Ranger. 
Yeah. It'll do everything. And, and the big difference is, and here's, here's my epiphany, Tommy. The big difference between like a pickup truck and a proper off-roader is you're not afraid of breaking expensive things. While the, this baby Bronco is really good off-road, you know, what happened was we took it up the first, a little, like, like I don't know, like one-tenth of the way up cliffhanger 2.0. We couldn't go higher because there was snow. But then the second you go a little bit higher, you get these big boulders. And actually, in the video, I had to remove a lot of them because what will happen is you will hit a big boulder and you will hit a big boulder into that plastic front bumper or into that plastic little section that hangs below it, right? And you will start doing very expensive damage uh, to these vehicles. Whereas pickups and Wranglers, right, all these bits are either protected or they're metal or they're cheap. Good point. Yeah, right? that's a good point. And you don't feel like... You, you, I'm not seeing it break anything, but if you do, you feel like it won't be, it won't break or it won't be expensive to replace. Well, let us know what you think in the comments below. Yeah. Yeah, and as always, this has been Tommy. And Roman saying thanks for watching and check out Tommy's and my video of the uh, Baby Bronco off-road. Uh, and uh, yeah, you'll be surprised how good it was. I was, I was blown away. So uh, congratulations for uh, this time the marketing and the reality, at least from our testing, are one and the same. We'll see you next time. Ciao. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.